got the pink slip for the car and that's quite a stocking stuffer. Are you going to tell me you can't accept it? No, no, that would make me a moron. I just want to know about these, uh, these instructions you left me. Just do what they say. Pay it forward. Why? Because you've accepted the car. You're obligated. I'm obligated? Well, what if I don't feel obligated? Huh? What if I just take my new car and get a couple of hookers and drive down to Mexico? I'll never know. You'll ne what is this? Come on, for real. A an attack of total altruism from, from a litigator. I've got a meeting. Wait, I've got a story, okay? A senior partner of Channing and Moss has given away new cars. You could tell me a reason or I could make one up. Mine will be a lot more interesting, I promise. You've gone dotty. You're wearing crystals. You're keeping a few too many cats at home, huh? Uh, look, all right, listen, listen, please. Uh, my ex-wife has everything, okay? There. Plus, she's in a lesbian relationship, I think, just to piss me off. Help me out, please. My daughter has asthma. One night it was very bad. The worst I'd ever seen it. It was the middle of the night, emergency room. We were waiting forever. Couldn't get anyone to pay attention. Her inhaler doesn't seem to be working at all. Mr. Parker, what happened here? My sister, she's I'm sorry, we have to deal with Stephanie's first. It's she policy. can't breathe. Well, she's you know, very look, scared. I will let you know. Somebody look, has sorry. to see her. It's protocol. It's never been this bad. Or seen first. You have to do Sir, something. Sir, would you just sit down? I'm sorry, we've been I, here for four look, hours. I don't understand that. need to get a doctor, some I'm oxygen, no. something. In, no, wait. We have a hey, no. No. We'll no. No. Hey, no. I'm going to report on bullshit. You need to help her right now. Excuse me? No, no, why you give me all this shit? And you got some oxygen or something you can give her? let me get No, 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 no. You don't need to get no supervisor. You're the supervisor today. Huh? You are the supervisor today. You feel me on that? Now, I want you to take your skinny ass down the hall, put a little girl on a train, supervisor, and I want you to get her some goddamn air. I got your back, sis. Oh, bitch, you still here? Shit! Oh, shit ain't funny, now is I thanked him. And there were some very specific orifices in which I was told to shove my thanks. He told me, just pay it forward. Three big favors for three other people. That's it. So it's like a pass it on thing. Wait a minute, you and this lowlifer and this chain of do-gooders, some kind of Mother Teresa conga line? That's a little new agey for you, isn't it? Sort of Tibetan? What are you, in a cult? If you mention my name, you'd be selling your kidneys to pay for your lawsuit. Cult. Hey, the guy. What was the guy's name? Sorry, I'm late for my mass wedding. Enough is never enough. Yes, we as Christians know that we should try our best not to be afraid of not having enough, right? We, we say that to ourselves. We know that it's not a good thing to say, oh, I don't have enough. Because in our Christian upbringing, we would say, no, that's wrong to say. But why do we keep falling into this discomfort, this fear of not having enough? Why do we catch ourselves having conversations with our friends and our colleagues, family and our spouses on worrying about not having enough money or enough of anything? Why do we like, are concerned about sometimes when, uh, um, let's say, uh, like when we're on vacation one time, uh, like uh, this past uh, week, I look at my receipt and then suddenly they have this automatic deduction of 20% tip right away. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you didn't even give me a choice, <laughs> right? How, how come I, I, I freak out on that? Or when the government suddenly does, like, closes taxes loopholes or you know, tries to get more money out of us to pay for something that we don't need, I, I, 
aka bike lanes, right? Nothing that I'm not that I'm against bike lanes or that I have any political you know view on those. Why are we easily angered when somebody takes money away from us or that we get ripped off? Why is it that when we when we receive phone calls of the donate to donate to organizations that we become very suspicious of people? Or when people uh, on the street ask us for money, we become very suspicious. Well, maybe it's used for drugs, right? Why? When we know for a fact in our Christianity, especially in our Christian faith, we are told and we are instructed by Jesus to be generous. Why do we keep fearing and having this discomfort of not having enough? We always say, I should be generous, but why am I not? Now, some of you may be familiar with a passage that Paul wrote in Romans 7, and it goes like this. I do not do what I want to do, but what I do not want to do, what does he say? I keep on doing, right? He even struggles with the things that he knows that needs to be done, but he doesn't do. So how can we find comfort in God in this discomfort? This morning, Paul addresses this discomfort. This discomfort, this fear of not having enough was not only for Paul, but also for the Corinthians. And you know what? It's not new either. It's also for many Christians back in the day of the first century until now. How can we find comfort in God when we are always tempted to fear enough not having enough? Or, or not like, um, I don't know, some of you guys who are Cantonese, a fear of japgansu, right? Japshu, right? Why do we feel that fear, right? Uh, yeah, it's just, for those who don't know, it's just to, get, to, to lose out, it's japshu. Paul did overcome it though. And also we shall see the Macedonians also overcame it. And even in their extreme trials and poverty as Paul would say. So let's begin with chapter eight because we're going to go through chapter eight and nine. Verse one, chapter eight. And now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Okay, underline or highlight Macedonian churches, who are they? In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. How did they do it? How did the Macedonians find comfort in God? Well, first of all, who were the Macedonians? Now, if you check out that map that um, I posted up there, according to this first century map, Macedonia was actually a region, not just a place, it's a region of places. And by looking at the map, the Macedonians included who? The Philippi and Thessalonica. Philippi, the very, it's a church in Philippi that Paul wrote the letter of the Philippians. Thessalonica is another church. Uh, there's a church there that Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians. There you have the Philippians and the first and second Thessalonians. So the church of Philippi and the church of Thessalonica were the Macedonians. Okay? They were the Macedonians that, that Paul was talking about. And what is so special about Philippi and Thessalonica? They were the poorest cities in that region. For example, for Philippi, that was a city for retired gladiators and army men. Not much skill, right? Not much uh, talent, no business acumen. They were retired people that 
kill people. That was our only skill. So what kind of income do they have? Pensions, low pensions from the Roman government. They didn't have much money. And so the Philippians were known to be the poorest of the poor, but for some odd reason, they were the most generous of all the churches, the most generous of them all. And that's why Paul says, in their severe trial, severe trial, they gave these Macedonians. Okay, let's take a look. So we are referring to the Philippians, so let's take a look at this example in the Philippians, chapter four, verse 11 to 12. I am not saying this because I am need, Paul says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. If you were in the church of Philippi right now, getting this letter and Paul wrote that, you would say, I get it. I understand, Paul, where you're coming from. I, a Philippian, can relate with you. It is very hard and it is very tough, but I have also learned how to be content in every circumstance. So the question for this morning is, how was Paul able to say in Philippians, and also how were the Philippians able to say in Philippians, in light of every situation that they face, they can be content. They can find contentment and they can find comfort in God in the midst of the discomfort of not having enough. Here's my point that I would like to make in our journey together. This discomfort that we have, the fear of not having enough, or the fear of not being happy or well off is a reflection of our inability or our misunderstanding of what it means to receive God's grace well. And let me say that again. This discomfort that we have, the fear of not having enough or the fear of not being happy or well off is a reflection of our inability or misunderstanding of what it means to receive God's grace well. Now, some of you may be familiar with the author John Edo Warden. Uh, he wrote a book called Resisting Grace. And so I'm going to be alluding to a few things from in his book today, just to give a caveat there. And the reason why we cannot give grace generously is probably because either A, we didn't receive it in the first place, or B, we didn't understand what God's grace meant to begin with when we received it. Therefore, in order to find comfort in God when we fear we don't have enough or the struggle between knowing not to fear but still fear, we need to revisit what is God's grace that was given to us. We need to know what that is again and how do we receive it properly. Part of the retreat is to again revisit that grace. Part of that retreat is to actually have you personally journey back into your encounter with God the encounter with God's grace, revisit that and say, what happened between then and now? So let's begin. Chapter eight, verse seven. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Okay, hold on. Paul is telling the Corinthians, the middle to upper class, well-educated business and working professionals to be real. We should remind ourselves that the major problem that the Corinthians had was their pride, their puffiness, right? It was addressed all of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, was, that was the biggest thing. 
They wanted to get ahead in life, and spirituality was the key for them to get ahead. They wanted to be the wittiest and smartest bunch. So what did they do? They wanted to be, be really good in Bible debates. You know, learn as much Bible as possible. Get to know, read all the books, and you know, like various books from various authors, just to be eloquent, to quash any argument that may come their way with regards to their Christian faith. But were they generous? No. They were not generous at all. They were not generous to give any of it away, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. They were not even humble about it. They kept on boasting about it. So Paul here uses a tactic, just as he did with the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. What did he do? Well, let's take a look in, a, uh, in chapter 8, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, but really, what did he say? Not. Right? It's more like a tongue-in-cheek comment. But you, since you excel in everything, not really. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. No. It's like a chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient because you're not. Right? Love is kind because you're not. You got that? So same thing here. Paul is using the same method. You excel in everything because you're not. Actually, you're not. Right? Faith? No. Right? Knowledge? No. Complete earnestness and love? Not really. So Paul says, let's get real here. What does Paul say? Well, let's move on to verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. What happens next is a brilliant move, right, for Paul. We're not really familiar with this type of maneuver because we're usually just being told, I'm wrong, you're right, type of thing, right? Like, uh, we're, we're very familiar with that world. Like, you're wrong, I'm right, you're young, I'm old, you're stupid, I'm you know, smart, right? That formula, right? Paul doesn't do that here with the first Corinthians, for the Corinthians because he knows that they're adults and that they can easily write them off. This is a letter, right? So what does he do? He does a brilliant move. He doesn't address the Corinthians as knowing nothing. What he does is very simple, and it's a revisitation of grace in which the gospel of Jesus gave him. Like us, most of us know the gospel, but sometimes when people notice our actions are contrary to the gospel, it may not be, it may not be intentional from us, right? It could be just a misunderstanding or maybe a, we need a revisitation of the gospel. So what does happen here is that Paul is saying, look, let's actually test the sincerity of your faith, right? Even though like, uh, your actions may not be intentional, maybe, maybe you're just being prideful because you don't know. Maybe because you're not being generous because it's just out of habit. Because most of us, I, I know I am, we're brought up with being savers. Like think about it. But then savers, the negative shadow behind savers is what? Hoarders, <laughs> right? From save, there's a fine line between save and hoard, right? Like, uh, so, like Paul is saying here, maybe it's just that there was that fine line and we just didn't know where to draw it. Maybe it was not intentional. Maybe you were brought up that way, and now we just have to revisit the gospel a little bit and uh, revisit it, clarify it, and then revisit the grace that we receive. So he goes and says, let's just test the sincerity of your love again by comparing it with the innocence of others. And who were the others? The Macedonians. So verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for sorrows for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Hmm. If you were the Corinthians, you probably knew what Paul was saying here, right? Remember, this is a letter to a group of people who Paul ministered directly and personally. So though this verse is short, 
Paul knew that the Corinthians knew what he meant. However, for you and I, unfortunately, we were not ministered by Paul directly and personally, and we're not definitely not in the first century anymore. We're in the 21st century, and therefore Paul is far removed. But so how do we know what, what Paul meant here when he said this verse? Well, for your sake he became poor, right? That's what he said. Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Which letter explains this a little more clearly in Paul's letters? Because we have to tap into Paul's letters to understand what he meant, right? Which letter did that sound like? Well, let's pick a letter from the Macedonians again. Let's go into Philippians, shall we? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I believe that this is where Paul drew it from, and I believe this is what the Corinthians read from Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing made himself poor by taking the very nature of a servant, being in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, is the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of Jesus Christ that has been given to us. You know, Jesus didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to empty himself and lower himself to our level. He could have just said, you know what, push the reboot button and I'll start a whole new humanity right then and there, right? God could have said, boop, <laughs> right? And then maybe incorporate the Vulcans, for instance, or something to, to take over instead of us being the, his chosen people, right? Klingons, I don't know. We didn't do anything to deserve it, right? Yet he became nothing, he became poor, he emptied himself, he died the death that was due for us, he rose from the dead and obtained the riches that are promised by God for those obedient to him. Recall that children, like people of God, God promised his people that if you remain obedient to me, you will receive the riches of heaven. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we didn't, <laughs> right? We didn't, get, we weren't obedient to God. Yet for some odd reason, he decided, God decided that to send himself through Jesus to die for us, to become obedient so that we could get those treasures through him. You follow? That, that's grace. And here's the most baffling truth. This gospel, this grace, this, this Jesus, he did all this without us even lifting a finger. He died for us. He earned all this through his resurrection. He earned all this, paid the debt for our sins, earned the, 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 all the treasures of heaven, that, all that, that heaven could contain, like Ephesians would say, and it's given to us if we believe what he did is true. That's it. He just says, believe what I did is true, and you get it. 
You get it. You're saved. You're forgiven. All of treasures, your full humanity, your glorious body that awaits you. This, remember the deposit of the Holy Spirit that's, that's laid for you. It's all yours if you just believe that this is true. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 8 and uh, 12 to 14. In him, Paul says, in his grace, by his grace, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, lavish not just means the washing, right? Lavish is like overwhelmingly like flood you. Like it's worse than the whole bucket challenge, okay? Like he just dunks you, right? He is saying that God, the riches of God's grace is lavished on you overflowing with all wisdom and understanding in order that you and I, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So in other words, all the wrongs that you're doing right now, the past wrongs, present wrongs, even the wrongs that you have no clue that you're going to be doing in the future. Okay? He says that, in, that through his grace, that in Christ, you will always be the praise of his glory. As long as you believe that is true. Isn't that amazing? Amen? That is the truth. That is this, the grace that he has given us. He goes on, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Folks, remember the, the three foundations that we keep on repeating? What is the foundation that, that we are now told to lean on when, we've tried, when we want to find comfort in God when we feel that we don't have enough? The deposit of the Holy Spirit. Right there. The deposit that guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, which is us. Folks, this is grace. Are we prepared to receive it then? This was probably your encounter, your original encounter when you encountered God. That you saw this, that you heard about it, and someone told you, or somebody told you that this is the grace that is awaiting for you. And then you, moved by the Holy Spirit, said, yes, I want to believe it. That moment, folks, was your moment to become God's child. I don't know when you had that experience, age 10, 8, in the teens, maybe multiple times in the teens, right? How many times do we come to the altar when teens camp? So, but think about it. This is the grace that was as often you have received and you were in awe and you fell flat in your face, probably in tears, humbled by that truth that everything that this is laid out, that Paul has laid out is given to you without even you lifting a finger. All you have to do is just believe it. Let's move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year in Acadia, you were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. All right, somebody uh, chuckled, and uh, you figured out where he was going on with this. 
I know you're eager to help, right? He says. It's like me telling uh, Annabelle, my six-year-old, I know you're eager to clean up your room, right? You're such a great girl and an amazing daughter. I know you're going to clean up your room, right? So when I come back, and by the way, I'm going to use your white bear bear to be your witness. And he's going to I, I tell me that you clean up your room, right? <laughs> That's her stuffed animal that she loves. She calls her white bear bear. So I'm going to say, your white bear bear is going to be my witness as well. You get it? So what is she going to do? I have to clean up my room, <laughs> right? White bear bears the witness, unless I throw him out, right? OK, so this is what Paul is doing. It's a motivation tactic. It's almost like saying, like, the, like what I said to my six-year-old. So why did he do it, though? Because he wants to tell the Corinthians that, hey, look what you have. What do you have? He goes into verse 14, and in their prayers for you, their, for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, we do not fear of not having enough because, Paul would say, of the generous gift that's already been given to us of the riches that we already received. And because of the riches that, that, that we have received, we cannot help but to give it away. We cannot help but to actually do what Jesus has told us to do, and it is to be generous, to give it, the grace, out to others. Here's what I mean by that. I still remember I, uh, I compare the level of gifts that I give to my daughter, right? I give to Annabelle. I give a gift to Annabelle one time, and she goes, oh. Eh, you know, ho-hum, whatever, right? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, thanks, Daddy. You have no idea who I am, you know? Like, I, that was so five minutes ago, I went on to another thing. You know, that type of thing. But then if I give a gift that she really likes and she really wants, what does she do? Oh, like, Rosanna knows. We have some video of her doing that. Oh, wow, Elsa doll! You know, like, you know, wow! Like, and then suddenly she would like, and then, and then the next thing that I would say is like, can you do this? Yes, I'll do it for you, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, out of that gift, she was impacted and she loved it so much. That, like, any request that we made that right after the next minute, by the way, listen to all parents, if they actually love that gift, Make a request right after that, <laughs> you know, so that, and, and then they go, oh, wow, yes, I will do it. How about us? Same thing, right? We receive this beautiful gift that Jesus has given us, this indescribable gift that Paul says. Thanks be to God of his indescribable gift. It's been given to you. What should you do? Paul says, all Jesus wants you to do is do the same thing. Wow, thank you so much. What can I do now for you in return? Because it's just so tremendous of what you have done for us. I'm sure some of you have actually received that type of thing. When you did something, a favor to somebody with, without them asking, and you just did it out of your generous heart, what did they usually say? Oh, what can I do for you? Right? What can I do for you? Same thing here. Jesus has given us this immense gift. What does he want from us? A life of thankfulness, a life of contentment, a life of thankfulness that, hey, this gift that he has given to us was worth it. He died and he rose. He offered his treasures and his riches. What does he really want from us is a life of just gratitude. Gratitude. Because if we ever, because if we find ourselves saying we don't have enough, we don't have enough, we complain and we whine about it, what is that telling Jesus? 
that his sacrifice was not enough, was not worth as much as we first encountered. Follow? Doing this service, uh, let's move on. In the verse 9 to 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So how do we live in thankfulness then? Generosity. That's how Jesus would say. A life of thanksgiving, a life of gratitude with, with an attitude of gratitude. I, I had to do that. It was pretty cool. Attitude of gratitude will result in a thanksgiving with generosity. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. It's an expression. It's our testimony, basically, Paul says. As we're generous in community day, guess what? That's our testimony. It means that we don't care. Go have your ice cream. Have your balloon animal. Because we love you so much because God loves us and we want to love you because we love God. That type of thing. All right, verse 9 to 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll be abound in every good work. Now just go back, for God loves a cheerful giver. We should be cheerful, basically, right? If God has given you this immense riches, we are to be cheerful. Let's move on to verse nine. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So first rule of thumb then. Paul says, how do you find comfort in God in the midst of this dilemma that we always consistently live every day of not having enough? First, be thankful. Contentment. Thankful is to be cheerful when it comes to giving, especially. We give with a cheerful heart. Gratitude is an attitude, right? Um, Henry and I went to a uh, Vancouver Foundation uh, summit. And at our discussion table, breakout table, one of the ladies actually said something very thought-provoking, didn't she? She goes, says, generosity is a muscle. It's like a muscle. You need to continue to work it in order to get it stronger. She's not a Christian. <laughs> right? But she, she t told us that on the table. Generosity is a muscle. It, is a, it needs to be worked. It's like a, you need to work it out to develop, make it stronger and stronger and stronger so it could endure. I think we too should take that lesson into place. Generosity, thankfulness, contentment, it's a muscle. And we need to continue to revisit it and work it out and work it out, whether through the retreat coming up or whether through your daily devotions. We continue to work that out. You know, and then second, the best way to overcome the fear, he says, is also to remember what we have in Christ and to be content with that. It is immense. And the next thing he says is interesting. He says that there's a wonderful promise that God gives. As if God needs to do anything else, right? But he does one thing, and he says one, the, like Paul says something really awesome. It's a, it's a promise. What does he say? Not only that you have forgiveness of sins, not only of past, present, and future, not only that you have a glorious body that's awaiting you, he says that he will make sure we won't starve. 
abundant. Now, star meaning, you know, fed. Not starve meaning getting a sandwich instead of a poke bowl, right? Starve, like, he means that God will sustain you, right? He might not sustain you through a poke bowl, but he will sustain you, right? Give you the bread that you need, all right? But then also, God promises, if you give generously, is that your work, your work in the gospel will be abundant. It'll be fruitful. That whatever we do here at church, Whatever we do out there in service to the community will be abundant. Notice the evidence yesterday, right? It's abundant. God will bless it. This pretty much is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, that in order to receive the grace we give, we receive grace generously? No, sorry. In order to receive grace well, we give grace generously. That's what he says. Because why is our expression of our thankfulness and our acknowledgement of how awesome the gift of God has given to us. It's our expression. It is to prove to ourselves, our test of our own sincerity, of how much we value Jesus Christ, his gift of salvation for us. Remember, all Jesus wants is a life of thankfulness a life of contentment, to tell him that we say, yes, Jesus, your sacrifice was worth it. Paid it all. I am full because of your sacrifice. And therefore, I will give others because that grace that I receive is so overwhelming and so lavish that I have to give it away. Amen? Let's pray.